0: We've just said, beginning this time of personal conversation with Jesus, that we believe that he sees us and that he hears us. And I'd like to encourage each one of us at the beginning of this time of prayer to add to that a petition, something that we want to ask of God, that he give us a grace to hear words from scripture that are very familiar as if for the first time to hear them for all their worth to ask for that special grace of the holy spirit that it pierce through any callous or insensitivity and that it shine with light into our minds freeing up our hearts so that we might love and pray in a genuinely sincere and personal way. Let's listen to the Holy Spirit speak to us through the words of Saint Mark. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. The young man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had Many possessions. What can we see in this young man besides someone who's very eager and inquisitive with a desire to know and to do more? What can we learn from this exchange between him and Jesus? Well, I think what we can see in him is, is something that's very typical of youth, generally, is that he knows that he wants more, he's just not too sure what that more is. And it's the very nature of love, in a sense. You know, love opens us up to what is changeless, to what is eternal. And that's, in a sense, is what behind, is behind his question What must I do to inherit eternal life? And by falling on his knees before Jesus, it's clear that for this young man, in Jesus, he senses somehow that something more that he wants in life. He's just maybe listening to Jesus and his preaching, seeing the things that he did. He intuits, he, he picks up that in this man who's a rabbi he's a teacher some people are saying he's a prophet some people are saying he's a healer this is what he would have been hearing on the street but he he just gets this sense he'll give me the answer he'll tell me what to do to somehow satisfy this hunger in my heart that I just need something more because he was a wealthy person he had lands and possessions many of his kind of practical problems were sorted. He had stuff. But no matter how much stuff gets piled on the human heart, it remains hungry. What what else is there? And we see that eagerness for more in the way that he responds to Jesus' reminding him of the Ten Commandments. Because Jesus' first encounter with this young man, you know, if we just imagine the scene, there's a group of people traveling around Jesus, and The crowd opens, and in the middle, this young man very dramatically drops on his knees in front of Jesus. Everyone stops and he publicly asks this question. You know, I mean he puts himself on the spot. Given that. Bold young man. Courageous. And Jesus seeing that, the first thing, well, first of all, he understands that this young man has no understanding of Jesus' true divine nature. This is why Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You see, J- Jesus is never looking for celebrity status. He's trying to direct this young man to God. And it's just It'll take time for him to understand that that's actually Jesus himself, even though the young man vaguely senses something powerful in Jesus' presence. And he has no, no idea that that's who he was, but, but that in, Jesus directs him in that way. And then the dialogue progresses. Jesus says, okay, well, look, I'm not, you know, only God is good, good. And he reminds him of the Ten Commandments. And the young man comes back and says, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, I know that. I've been doing it ever since I've, I was young. What else is there? What else is there? Since I've read it to you, and you already knew the story, we know how this ends. But I think we should take it slowly and seriously. In other words, when this young man is saying, I've already done this, what else? He really means it. He really is looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what more? And I'd like to suggest that that really be the beating heart of our prayer right now. That each one of us have the courage in the accompanied silence of our heart to turn to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, what more? And I wanna ask this question not in the sense of what more things should I do? Or I don't wanna ask this question out of a desire for reassurance because I'm feeling insecure or I'm nervous that I'm not good enough or I feel that I'm really a wicked person and I don't know if God loves me. Let's actually try to ask this question precisely because we believe in God's mercy and his love. Jesus, what more in my life? What more can I do? What more can I be? We want to be stepping forward towards a love of Jesus that's vaster and more profound. Not just because we wanna be shiny and good and better than other people. We don't even wanna be that. But what I'd like to suggest is that prayer, Jesus, what more? To say that prayer is to be true to the nature of your heart. A heart that was created for limitless love. A heart that was created for God. For other people, for the joys of this life for the sunsets and the wonderful get-togethers with friends, for the beauty of music and of poetry, of achievement and work well done. All of that is well, but all of that is part and parcel of that love of God. That's what the human heart has been created for. And we need to try to react against the way in our habits and our society and the things our soul gets, our heart gets anesthetized Numb. You know what happens to you when you go to the dentist and you get a little shot in your jaw and your you know your mouth is and you start, you know, you get anesthetized. It's numb. Well that happens to us when we stop asking the question, Jesus, what more? And we just settle in to what's easy and what's happening and we're going with what other people are doing, and I just bought a new phone, and I've got some new shoes, and next week I've got a nice little trip, and I'm grand, and I'm moving, and there's stuff, and I'm being rocked to sleep. In that situation, I'm not being true to the heart that God has created in me, to my truest dignity. Jesus, what more? And if that young man on his knees before Jesus, looking up to him with the eagerness and the sincerity of youth, is saying to him, Master, I've already done this. I'm keeping the commandments. I'm trying to live a good life. What more? We need to consider again, very slowly, how Jesus reacts. And of all the gospel accounts of this encounter, Mark is the one who gives us The briefest and yet most insightful version. He says, Jesus looking at him loved him. How do you know from a look that there's love there? How would Mark, as an eye, or the person who was an eyewitness who told Mark about this event, how would they have known that Jesus looking at him loved him? What was that look like? This could be the the focus of our whole time of prayer, just imagining that look, the way he might have leaned forward, the gentle expression on his face, a smile, the intensity of that look. Be bold and believe. You and I both need to be bold and believe that Jesus Responds to my prayer, Jesus, what more? He responds to that petition in the same way. He looks and He loves. And when we say that Jesus looks, in other words, we mean to say that He sees all the reality of me the weakness, the shabby bits the parts that I like to look over and ignore. He sees all of that. He sees the reality, he sees what is, and at the same time, he sees what could be. And the beautiful thing about allowing Jesus to look at you, allowing Jesus to contemplate you, not pulling back, letting the facade drop, is that when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't allow what is, to make him despair about what could be. We have a tendency ourselves to do that. When we see what is, when we get a glimpse, we, we, we feel mainly it's through our emotions and through our reactions to things or our perceptions of the way other people react to us, we can be a little bit discouraged or afraid to be alone with ourselves, be afraid of silence, So we put in the ear pods, we turn up the volume, we do something else, we turn on that device, we keep moving, we keep busy. But Jesus doesn't get edgy like that. He looks and he is filled with hope. He looks and he loved him. And what we want to see is that when Jesus loved him, St. Mark isn't just talking about some sort of emotional state in Jesus' heart, simply. When Jesus loved him, his love was an action. And more specifically, it was an action that was a call. The call of this young man to change his life in a radical way. If we're trying now in our prayer to turn to Jesus in sincerity and say, Jesus, what more? If I'm trying to have the courage to believe that he looks at me and that he loves me, I need to go even further in saying that the love that Jesus has for me is precisely the fact that he is calling me by name. He has for me a personal vocation. My life is not a biological accident. It's not the result of physical laws and the emergence of physiological phenomena that can be explained simply in those terms. It has an intention. It has a direction. And that direction is one of the greatest expressions of Jesus's personal love for me. Now, what Jesus says to this young man, and what he's saying to us, this is why we're contemplating this this scene. What Jesus says to this young man is not an imposition but rather it is a proposition. And I don't mean that to be simply a nice little play on words. Jesus tells him, look, the 10 commandments, these are the the requirements of a, uh, the minimum requirements of a life that is compatible with God. And the young man says, yes, I'm doing that and I've been doing it, what more? And then this is where Jesus comes with the proposition an invitation He doesn't say, oh, you've done that, well, I'm going to make you do even more. No. He's speaking to his freedom. And he invites him to something more. A life of prayer is not a demand that God makes of us that we'll get punished for disobeying. See, come back to this, this, you know, we're saying here in our prayer, Jesus, what more? We're saying that in response to this belief that Jesus has for me a purpose. It's an invitation to something greater and more joyful than anything we could ever manage on our own. Jesus increase my faith to believe this. Give me the certainty of hope, that it's really worthwhile, it's really worth it and possible for me to pray in these terms. St. Maria, the founder of Opus Dei, who had a, a, a man with, with a very, very strong sense of God's unique love for him as a father, and therefore a very, very strong sense of his vocation, his direction, and his purpose in life. One of the phrases from Scripture that he used to constantly come back to, and he would mention it a lot in his preaching and in his personal notes when he would kind of jot down things that he had been praying about, were the words of the, the prophet Isaiah responding to God's call to him. And, and since when St. Jose Josemaria was a priest, everything was in Latin and the liturgy, a lot of his quotations from Scripture are in Latin. And he would repeat that phrase, Ece ego quia vocastime. Behold, here I am because you have called me. And to help us pray, I'd like to read some words from, from, taken from some of his personal notes of prayer. He says, a day of salvation, of eternity, has come for us. Once again, the call of the divine shepherd can be heard. Those affectionate words, I have called you by your name. Just like our mother, he calls us by our name, even by the name we were affectionately called at home. There in the depths of our soul, he calls us and we just have to answer. Ecce ego quia vo Here I am for you have called me. And this time I'm determined not to let time flow by like water over rounded stones, leaving no trace behind. This isn't a sentimental effort to feel closer to God. It's a realistic effort to stand in the light of God's truth. Now, in the moment that St. Mark's talking about, in this exchange with this young man, Jesus invited this particular young man, not everybody, wasn't saying he directed everyone, but to this particular young man to leave his lands behind and to commit himself to relying on God in the service of others. It was an invitation to make the future of God's kingdom, what was going to happen in the future, the way life is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, it was an invitation to start living that future now by being fully reliant on Jesus at the service of other people. And the church has always lived through the centuries on the power and the grace and the energy that arises from people saying yes to that kind of invitation. To give themselves, body and soul, to God. And not just for themselves, but for the good of others. And that's still necessary in the church. It's something that we need to pray that many more people say yes to that invitation. To give themselves. Sacrificing the beauty and the wonder of marriage and of having a family so as to be completely given to the service of God and of his family. But while it's true that's a particular vocation for some, for all of us, God calls us with vocational love. Each and every one of us, he calls us by name with a purpose. And going back to this rich young man, what's at the heart of this, and this can apply to all of us in all of our circumstances, what's at the heart of this invitation is for this young man to discover the joy and the life that are on the other side of commitment, the other side of commitment. Now, this is a fairly worn path to talk about how hard commitment is in today's society, right? Talk about this in terms of relationships, dating relationships, romantic things, professional things. Commitment just isn't really very common. And there's a lot of reasons for that, because we breathe in, all of us, breathe in a myth of limitless possibility. In the last couple of weeks here in Ireland on the radio, there's been a, a publicity campaign for a, a mobile phone provider, and the constant phrase is, do anything anywhere, do anything anywhere. Now, I know they're talking about 4G coverage and therefore you know, you'll have it, you know, like 96% of the country is covered by them and therefore do anything, anywhere. You know, but you just think about it, That's just the message that's being drilled into us. You know, every time you turn on the do anything, anywhere. Just think about the worldview <laughs> implicit in that phrase. Do anything, anywhere. And... Part of that worldview and what arises from that, is this nervousness, indeed this fear that if I commit to something I'm losing out on so many more things. You know, if I can do anything anywhere, well if I do something there's a lot of other things that I'm not doing or couldn't do. I'm closing myself off. So therefore people have this sense of it just feels safer to keep my options open. And this happens at what happens to you on the weekend, it happens to you, any kind of decisions, it happens us in all sorts of levels. People just get anxious before choice. Because if I can do anything anywhere, well, what if I don't do the right thing in the right place? <laughs> There's an American novelist by the name of Walker Percy. And he, one of his last novels is a novel, he was from the American South. One of his last novels was called The Last Gentleman. And In it, the main protagonist of the novel is a fellow by the name of Will Barrett. And he's struggling precisely with the sense of identity, commitment, purpose, direction. He moves to New York City, then he moves to another place. He comes in with a family. There's a very, there's an ill person. Anyway, the the novel, but I just wanna focus on after a very dramatic event happens in the novel, which would require a lot of explaining that we don't have the time to do, the narrator, gets into Will Barrett's head and describes kind of how this moment was so pivotal. And he says, For until this moment, he had lived in a state of pure possibility, not knowing what sort of man he was or what he must do, and supposing, therefore, that he must be all men and do everything, But after this morning's incident, his life took a turn in a particular direction. Thereafter, he came to see that he was not destined to do everything, but only one or two things. Lucky is the man who does not secretly believe that every possibility is open to him. Why is that man lucky, doesn't have that secret belief, who isn't buying into the, the advert, do anything everywhere or anywhere. He's lucky because he's actually free to do something that matters. He's not paralyzed by a mirage, by a false belief that all sorts of other things are open and that they will make me happier. You know, for example, I, I'm free when I've actually bought a car. I'm getting ready to be free when I'm reading reviews, when I'm watching YouTube videos, when I'm looking through different models, when I'm talking to people, when I'm going back, when I'm doing all this sort of work. I, I just, you know, I have this possibility and maybe that model, do I want this color? Do I want that make? Do I want Tesla? Do I want the other, you know, electric? But it's only when I commit and say, okay, then I can start driving, then I can start using, then I'm actually committed in doing something. Now, it's a very simple consumeristic example, but it's sometimes easier to see things on the outside than it is on the inside. Jesus invited this man to commitment. In a radical way, yes. And maybe for most of us, that's not the kind of commitment that he's asking or inviting us to but each and every one of us. He is asking us to resist the myth that all things are possible. I can be all types of person if I just want to. And he's asking us to have the optimistic realism that comes from genuine prayer saying, Lord, who am I? Who have you created me to be? Because that life is the life I wanna lead. I don't wanna chase a mirage facilitated by the ubiquity of internet coverage. I want reality, because that's where I'll find joy and peace and meaning. Now this young man walked away from Jesus' invitation. And please notice that Jesus lets him, you know, Good to keep that in mind, you know, for those who think that our Christian faith is intolerant and, you know, an integralist sort of thing. Jesus invites him, and when he just walks away, he doesn't send the apostles to chase him down and catch him and drag him along. He lets him walk away because he genuinely was speaking to his freedom. The invitation was real. And Jesus' invitation to you is real. And therefore, so is your ability and mine to say yes or to say no. And it's an invitation. It's, it's not an imposition. An invitation to make something greater happen. Or to prefer standing before the options of life. And maybe that's how we just want to, kind of the, the lesson we want to draw from the fact that this young man as St. Mark says, walked away grieving. He came with that desire for more, but he, and we aren't told why, he had great possessions, he felt the pull of that, he preferred to rely on that, but he walked away grieving. And that grieving will always be the experience of someone who prefers to be more in love with life's options, than with life itself. The life that Jesus is calling to me, me too. The life that's on the other side of commitment. Now, this is pretty sobering stuff and it was pretty sobering for the disciples. They were kind of shocked by it. Mark says as much. They were shocked and they said to one another, who then can be saved? Seems kind of a lot. This fellow who was very smart and very good and probably smarter and better than they were. If this fellow walks away who's so good and talented, how do I have a chance? You know, am I really capable of committing myself to prayer, of genuinely seeking out what God wants of me and trying to, to shape my life in, in those terms? Jesus gives us the answer through St. Mark. Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible So, in other words, if you feel a little bit of vertigo before that question, Lord, what are you calling me? What have you created me for? If you feel a little bit of vertigo, well, yeah. (laughs) Because to say yes to something greater than what inertia is taking me towards is a little bit beyond me. For mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And this is our hope, that for God, all things are possible. His faithfulness is the guarantee that my efforts to commit myself in daily things, and we're running out of time, but I meant to get more into this. Commitment is not just, you know, my whole life and my destination and what was God calling me to do, but I take steps towards that through those daily small changes, you know? making time for conversation with him for prayer, really being committed to the sacrament of confession in a regular way, identifying one or two things that I can improve in the way that I work so that I get better at doing it and doing it as a service of others. Those things that that change the daily rhythm of my life, those are all ways in which that commitment that we've been praying about takes shape. And since for God, all things are possible, it's worth running the risk of making those efforts. It's worthwhile. We're not just rolling the dice to see what happens. Because God is faithful. Mary had an amazing sense of being chosen, of of purpose in her life. And she lived it very humbly, very ordinarily, in a very normal way. Let's ask her, in our very normal circumstances, to discover precisely in them the day-to-day things that God is calling me by name. So that when I try to do them better, I'm not just trying to say yes to an obligation. I'm saying yes to an invitation, a call, a vocation. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father in Lord, my guardian angel, and receive for me.